Amen. Amen. Good morning. When I was in seminary, one of my professors said that the difference between being a leader and being a martyr was just two steps. And what he meant was that if leaders get too far ahead of the people that they're trying to lead, they become targets of attack from the very people that they're trying to lead. That wise leaders will pace themselves just one step ahead of the people that they're trying to lead. Well, this morning we're going to talk about a group of men and women who lived their lives in that gap between being a leader and being a martyr. This morning we're going to talk about the Hebrew prophets. We've been in a series called The Biggest Story as we've been lingering in the reality of Easter during this season of Easter after celebrating the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. And we've been in this series looking at the overall storyline of the Bible. Two weeks ago, our guest speaker, Jeff Lewis from Cal Baptist University, gave us a bird's eye view of the storyline of the Bible from beginning to end, from the first book, Genesis, to the last book, Revelation. And he reminded us that this big story of the 66 books of the Bible is God reestablishing his kingdom on earth and throughout creation through the redemption of the nations. Then last weekend, Pastor Greg talked about how out of all of those nations, God chose one man and one family, Abraham. And God promised Abraham that through Abraham and through his family and the nation that came from Abraham, that God would bring his blessings to all of the other families, to all of the other peoples and nations of the earth. And from Abraham came the ancient nation of Israel. And God entered into a special relationship with the nation of Israel, what the Bible calls a covenant relationship. And in that covenant, Israel pledged to live as God's people, to be a part of God bringing his blessings to all of the other nations of the world. Israel promised to faithfully live out their part in the unfolding plan of God for all of creation. And whenever the people of Israel started to drift away from the promises that they had made, God would send them prophets, men and women, to get them back on track with the promises that they made. And so today we're going to look at the role these prophets played in the biggest story. And let's start with who the prophets were. Although there were numerous, probably hundreds and hundreds of people who were prophets throughout ancient Israel's history, in the Old Testament we find 48 men and 7 women who are explicitly named as prophets. The earliest person called a prophet in the Old Testament was Abraham himself. And the last was Malachi in the last book of our Old Testament part of the Bible. The earliest of these prophets didn't write down their messages, they just spoke their messages. 
We might call these the speaking prophets. Men like Nathan the prophet, Elijah and Elisha, women like Huldah, Abigail, and Miriam. However, of those 55 prophets who are named, 16 of them have books in the Bible attributed to them. The four major prophets of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Daniel, and the 12 minor prophets. And so we might call that grouping the written prophets. The 10th century before Jesus was born was the golden age of the speaking prophets. And the earliest of the written prophets probably started somewhere around the 8th century before Jesus and ended somewhere around the 5th century. So most of the Hebrew prophets, both spoken and written, lived within a 500-year window of Israel's history. Now, the written prophets make up 19% of the verses in your Bible. For those of you counting, that's 5,875 verses of the Bible are comprised of the written prophets. And out of all those verses, only 2% are prophecies about the coming of Jesus. Only a handful of those verses are prophecies about the end of the age. The vast, vast majority of those verses that are in our Bibles are about situations and circumstances that were happening in the lifetime of the prophet who spoke or wrote those words. Now, these prophets communicated their message in a variety of different ways. Some of them preached sermons. Some of them told parables, like when Nathan the prophet confronted King David by telling him a parable. But most of the prophets spoke and wrote in what are called oracles. Oracles are an ancient Hebrew form of poetry. And the books that are attributed to the written prophets are collections of their oracles and sermons. For instance, in the book of Haggai, one of the minor prophets, there are four different oracles that Haggai delivered on four different occasions that someone, perhaps Haggai himself, collected into a written book for subsequent generations like us to be able to read. Now, when we read the prophets as Christians, it's important for us to remember that although we worship the same God they worshiped, that we're in a different part of the story. In other words, Christians are under a different covenant than the people of Israel were under. Israel had entered into their covenant with God through Moses. And it's the stipulations of that covenant relationship that the prophets held Israel accountable to. But as Christians, we live under the new covenant, right? We talk about it every time at communion, established by Jesus through his death and resurrection. In other words, we live at a different part of the biggest story. So how do I cover 19% of the Bible in a single sermon? How much time do you have today? I thought what I would do is I would just talk about the four most central themes we find throughout the prophets and just give you examples of those themes. 
Each of these four themes relates to a specific temptation that the nation of Israel faced to break their promises to God. And yet these four themes aren't just words of judgment. These four themes are also invitations and words of comfort and reassurance that invite Israel back into their promises so they can fulfill their role in God's biggest story. So the first theme we're going to talk about is the theme of unfaithfulness. As Israel struggled with the temptation to be unfaithful to their promises to God. Israel constantly struggled with this temptation to be unfaithful to their promise to live as God's people for the sake of the rest of the nations. And the primary way that they were tempted in this way was by worshiping other gods in the form of idols. This was such a pervasive temptation that the first two of the Ten Commandments that Moses gave Israel were warnings about this, to not worship other gods and to not bow down to idols. You see, by entering into a covenant with the Creator God, the true and living God who had saved Israel out of their slavery, Israel pledged to worship God alone. And yet they were constantly tempted to break that pledge Now, idols back then represented powers that people believed controlled everyday things like crops and health and having children and military victory. And the way of thinking in the ancient world was that by dividing your loyalties to these different idols, that you could have success and prosperity and victory in life. But for Israel to do that would be for them to be unfaithful to their promises to live as God's people. Sometimes the prophets use the analogy of marriage to describe God's relationship with Israel. You particularly see this in the the book of Hosea, one of the minor prophets. It's as if God is the husband and Israel's the wife. And when Israel worships other gods, it's like they're cheating. They're breaking their vows to God. One of the most common ways the prophets would confront Israel's unfaithfulness was with something that some people call lawsuit oracles. It's a fancy word, lawsuit oracles. Here the prophets would frame their message in the form of an ancient lawsuit as if God is serving Israel and suing them for breaking their commitment to him. Let me give you an example from um, the 7th century before Jesus in Micah chapter 6. Listen to what the Lord says, says Micah. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. It's as if God is suing Israel and calling them into the court to answer for their unfaithfulness. We see these kinds of lawsuit oracles throughout the prophets again and again and again. And because of this temptation to be unfaithful, the prophets would reassure Israel again and again that God is worthy of their highest devotion. 
God is worthy of their whole hearts, of all that they are. You see, Israel resorted to idols because their view of God was too small. And so the prophets would all paint these amazing word pictures of God's majesty and his greatness and his goodness and his justice. In the writings of the prophets, we find some of the most exalted descriptions of God that you will find anywhere in the Bible. And let me just give you one example from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 44. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people. That's Israel. And what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what is to come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. He's speaking this to Israel. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. These kinds of amazing descriptions of God are found throughout the prophets. And they serve to reassure Israel that God is worthy of their whole heart, of their full devotion. The idols that they were tempted to worship were made of wood and clay and stone and metal. They had eyes that couldn't see and ears that couldn't hear and mouths that couldn't speak. And the prophets condemn Israel's unfaithfulness when they give in to that temptation, but they're quick to comfort and reassure Israel that God is worthy of their whole hearts. A second temptation we see in the prophets is the temptation of arrogance, of arrogance. You know, every people group is tempted to think that they're better than other people groups. The ancient Greeks thought non-Greek people didn't have souls. The ancient Persians and Egyptians and Assyrians and virtually every other ancient civilization thought that they were superior to all the other people groups. This is part of the sinful human condition. And we still see it just as much today as it happened back then. But when Israel gave in to this temptation of arrogance... It subverted their ability to live as the people of God for the sake of these other peoples. You see, because God chose Israel to play a role in his story, the biggest story, they were constantly tempted to think because they were chosen, they were better. Nowhere do we see this temptation more clearly than we see it in the book of Jonah, one of the minor prophets. You might remember Jonah's story because Pastor Greg preached an entire series on it last summer for us. God had called the prophet Jonah to leave his hometown in Israel and to go to the Assyrian people in the city of Nineveh and to deliver God's message there. And instead of obeying, Jonah ran the other way and it took divine intervention to finally get him to the city of Nineveh where he preaches a one-sentence sermon and we learn in the book of Jonah, as we read it, 
that the reason why Jonah ran away in the first place is because he thought he was better than the Assyrians and he didn't want God to show the Assyrians the same grace and mercy that God had shown him and shown the rest of Israel. Jonah and the rest of the people of his generation thought they were superior to the Assyrians. So listen to how the book of Jonah ends in chapter 4. But the Lord said to Jonah, you have been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. Should I not have concern over the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people? Jonah represented Israel's constant temptation to arrogantly think that they were better than everyone else. And it's because of this temptation to think that they were superior that the prophets would reassure Israel that God chose them, yes, but he chose them for the sake of the world. God didn't choose Israel for Israel. God chose Israel for the sake of all the other nations. God chose Israel for the sake of the Assyrians and the ancient Egyptians and every other nation. God could have just as easily chosen the Egyptians or the Philistines or any other ancient nation, but out of mysterious grace, he chose this one to serve a particular purpose in the biggest story. God chose Israel to embody his goodness, his wisdom, for the rest of the world to see. And ultimately, he chose Israel to bring his Savior, his Messiah, the Savior of all the nations, into the world. And we find this theme again and again in the prophets, that God chose them for the sake of the world. Consider these words from Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3. Isaiah is speaking to Israel. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. That's God's vision for Israel. But Israel couldn't do that when they arrogantly thought that they were better than others. A third temptation we find throughout the prophets is the temptation of oppression. Oppression. In Genesis 3, when sin entered the human race and the world, sin corrupted every human heart, every relationship, every society, and every institution of every society. Sin was like a splash in a lake that sent ripples throughout the entire lake and disrupted everything and put everything in the lake out of order. And so when God called Israel, he gave them his law. Out of grace, he gave them his Torah, his teaching, in order for them to regulate their lives according to the goodness and justice of God, to be a light to the nations. But throughout Israel's history, the powerful within Israel would ignore parts of the Torah of the law and would oppress the vulnerable among them in their own people. Numerous examples from the prophets of this temptation. I want to just share two with you. 
The first comes from Isaiah again, Isaiah 10. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. Here we see that within ancient Israel of Isaiah's day, it was those who made the laws and those who controlled the courts who were using their power to oppress the vulnerable among them. The most vulnerable people in ancient Israel were the poor, immigrants, the fatherless, and widows. And throughout Israel's history, when they gave in to this temptation, the powerful would steal their land and sell people into slavery and pay unfair wages and force people into marriages that they didn't want or unjustly incarcerate people or bribe the courts to pervert justice. Here the people of Israel, a nation of former slaves once oppressed by the Egyptians, over time became the very oppressors of their own people. And when that happened, their spiritual lives became hypocritical. It became an empty sham. Consider these words in the prophet Amos, chapter 5. God says to the people of his generation, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. And if that last verse sounds familiar, it's because it was one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s favorite verses. Here's the third theme facing this temptation of oppression. Because of this temptation to oppress the vulnerable, the prophets would reassure Israel again and again, God stands with the vulnerable. God stands with the vulnerable. God stood with Egypt when they were slaves, or God stood with Israel when they were slaves in Egypt and no one else stood with them. God advocates for those who have no other advocate. And for Israel to live as the people of God for the sake of the nations means that they too would look out for those among them who had no one else to look out for them. Consider these words in the prophet Micah 6.8, very familiar words. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. For Israel to be faithful to their sacred promises to live as the people of God for the sake of the rest of the world, Israel must act with justice. They must love mercy. The Hebrew word there is hesed, covenant faithfulness. And they must walk in humility. Or consider these words from Isaiah 58, 6 and 7. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen, says God, to loose the chains of injustice, to unite the cords, untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood?' 
You see, it's not that God was against a spiritual practice like fasting or or worship or these kinds of things, but when the people who were engaging in spiritual practices were also oppressing or ignoring the vulnerable among them, their spiritual practices became hypocritical. It's this third theme that's a big reason why Lake Avenue Church works with community partners like Door of Hope. Because God still stands with the vulnerable. This is still the fast God accepts to provide shelter for the wanderer, which is what Door of Hope does with the homeless in our very own community. This is part of what it means to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk in humility before God. The final temptation that the prophets warn about is the temptation of mistrust. Mistrust. When Israel pledged to God to live as God's people for the sake of the world, they promised to live by faith in their role in God's plan. And God assured Israel that they had an important role to play in the biggest story. But during times of adversity, it was hard for Israel to see how God was keeping up his end of the bargain. During times of famine and economic scarcity, during times of sickness and war, it was hard to walk by faith in ancient Israel. And so the people of Israel would be tempted in those times to distrust God's promises and to hedge their bets. And often this would come in the form of alliances and treaties with other nations, just in case God didn't come through with his promises. Consider this warning from Isaiah 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. God had delivered Israel out of their slavery in Egypt centuries earlier, and here in Isaiah's day, they're tempted to go back because they had trouble trusting the promises of God. The promise warned of this temptation of mistrust again and again. And it's because of this temptation to mistrust the promises of God that the prophets would reassure Israel again and again that God will fulfill his plan. God will fulfill his plan. Nothing can stop God's plan. Many of the prophets spoke words of judgment about other nations The prophet Nahum spoke against Assyria, Zephaniah against Cush, Daniel against Babylon and Persia, Jeremiah against Egypt, Ezekiel against Tyre and Sidon. And these messages of judgment were not delivered to those other nations. They were spoken to Israel about those other nations. And they were speak these messages of judgment about the other nations to reassure Israel that those powers, as powerful as they were, could not stop the plan of God. This fourth theme explains why we find messianic prophecies about Jesus in the prophets as well. For instance, when Ahaz, king of Judah, was struggling with his temptation to mistrust the promises of God. 
The prophet Isaiah came to Ahaz and says, just ask God for a sign. Anything you ask, he'll give you a sign that he's with you. But Ahaz was too busy trying to negotiate a treaty with ancient Assyria to ask God for a sign. And he refused. And so Isaiah says in Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And although a son was born in Isaiah's day as kind of a partial sort of fulfillment, the real fulfillment of this prophecy came 700 years later when Jesus was born of a virgin. These kinds of messianic prophecies are God's pledge. He will fulfill his plan and not even the king of Assyria could stop it from happening. Although the prophets condemn mistrust, they're quick to offer reassurance that God will fulfill his plan. There are many other themes we could talk about in the prophets, but these four themes are central to their message Because Israel consistently faced the temptation of every generation to be unfaithful to their promise, to arrogantly think that they were better than others, to oppress and ignore the vulnerable among them, and to mistrust the promises of God. And thus came the prophets, confronting rich and poor alike, kings and priests and sometimes other prophets. Some of the prophets were murdered, some were imprisoned, Jeremiah was thrown headfirst into a well and left to die. But as passionately as they warned about these temptations, just as passionately the prophets would reassure Israel that God is worthy. They would reassure Israel that God chose them for the sake of the world, that God stands with the vulnerable, and that God will fulfill his plan Every warning is also an invitation to hope because that's the kind of God God is. Israel fulfilled its part in this biggest story. And we today who follow Jesus have our own role in the story as the Christian church. We've made our own sacred promises to God to follow Jesus and trust him, to take his message to the nations, to embody and live Jesus' teachings in our lives and to be transformed into Jesus' likeness. And we are fooling ourselves if we think we don't face the same temptations that ancient Israel faced. Perhaps perhaps this is why 19% of the Bible are verses from the prophets. Because even though they finished their role, we need encouragement to finish ours. And yes, the prophets are in the Bible to show us prophecies about Jesus and about the end of time. But in God's wisdom, the prophets are also there to reassure us that God is still faithful. To remind us that God chose us for the sake of others, not for our own sakes. To remind us that God still stands with the vulnerable, and so should we. And to remind us that God's promises can be trusted. That he will fulfill his plan for all of creation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the prophets that their words are relevant even generations after they spoke. 
Father, help us, Lake Avenue Church, help us, the church of this generation throughout the world, heed their message. Help our faith be formed by their warnings and their promises and reassurances. Help us be faithful to the promises that we have made to live as your people in our part of the big story. For we pray these things in Christ's name, amen.